electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, we are charting the rally. The Dow hitting a major milestone, and one top technician is breaking down the next key levels to watch. Plus, the big fight over Ford. Two traders with very different takes on where this stock is headed. We'll find out who is in the driver's seat. And we're busting out our patent-pending Bitcoin bug as the cryptocurrency crashes through the $19,000 mark. But our very own Bitcoin baller says proceed with caution. He'll tell us why. We start off with another record day on Wall Street. The Dow closing above the 30,000 mark for the first time in history. Nearly four years since first breaking the 20K mark. So the question we ask tonight, are we headed... Yep, that's right. Are we heading higher and higher? There are lots of positives in the markets right now. The presidential transition is underway. Janet Yellen is Treasury Secretary. Could mean more stimulus is on the way. And we have not one, not two, but three coronavirus vaccines ready to rock. So as the Dow hits a major milestone tonight, is the next 10 percent move higher and higher? Or are we headed lower and lower? Guy. Well, that, that song, I mean, that's a miserable song. That's and why that, we don't, chose please it. Please don't at me on the Twitter. <laughs> that's, that's you tough. know, it's interesting. That's you know, it's, it's fascinating that in, in the list of po- bullish things, we talk about the peaceful transfer of power as somehow being a bullish thing when that should just be, you would think that would just be a, a given. I, and mm-hmm. I, I just find that the market took that as a positive today. Fascinating. All the other positives fascinating as well. And I'll be the first to say that in terms of the broader market, I've been dead wrong. You know, I've thought this thing was going to stall it a number of times. You know, we've had individual stocks we've done a good job with, broader market not so much. But we are so over our skis in terms of valuation, in terms of euphoria, in terms of all the things that can go right, not focusing on all the headwinds that are out there. I have to say, Melissa, that despite the fact that I've been wrong, broader market, I still think the next 10% has to be down. So you're going to stick with that. Brian Kelly, how about you? I mean, we seem to be climbing this wall of worry, and we're looking past. Isn't that what markets do? Right. That's what markets do. I guess the question is, if you think the market's going lower, then what is what, what else is, uh, you know, what's going to hit us? You never get hit by the bus you can see. So what can't you see? I mean, to me right now, the market's pricing in more stimulus. Uh, it's pricing in low interest rates. Uh, and it's pricing in relatively stable politics to somewhat of a gridlock type of state. All those three things are great. Eventually, that stimulus and that all this money that we plowed into it creates inflation. But as Milton Friedman always said, all the good parts of inflation come first. So that's where we are in the market. So it makes a lot of sense to me that equity, our equity prices are going higher. But what could go wrong? You could get, I mean, we are seeing oil prices up higher. That could put a stall on the economy. Maybe something happens with Brexit. Maybe the vaccine doesn't work. Those are all the things that we might not be able to see. But absent that... The market, to me, appears to be pricing in the the economic situation that we have in the next six months. So does that mean that we're going higher, uh, Brian? I mean, do you think that we still go higher because all the good things are still to come, the actuality of the good things? 
versus what we're seeing right now, which is sort of the, the looking toward the good thing, so to speak. So you- Right. So you're saying I could have just said higher or lower and been done? But basically, I mean, I mean, we could have skipped two minutes of it. No, no, no. Yeah. It was good to go through the risk factors. So I'm going to ask that question to Tim. And, no, and now you've I, set him up nicely. But, but Brian, higher and higher or no, lower and lower so at this point? I do, if, if I have to answer higher or lower, I think higher. Tim, you throw your hands up. Why? Well, I don't, this, is, this is like faded or traded or shoot it or, 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 or punt it. I, I don't. What, what's the question again, please? I'm not. I'm not the smartest guy in the. We've hit in the this milestone. So what, do you, the, the next ten percent yes. move in the markets? You think will be higher or lower? Well, if you're telling me a straight ten percent move higher or lower in one direction. Um, I don't think we're going to get either. I don't think you're saying that. But I, I, I think, uh, will we be 10% higher, faster, or 10% down from here? Uh, which will come first? Maybe that's the question. Sorry to rephrase it. Um, but that makes more sense to me. I, I think it will be 10% higher. Um, having said that, remember the run we've had since July 30th. We uh, essentially went straight up 10%. We went down 10%. Uh, we zigzagged. And in fact, um, we're now up 12.5% off that bottom, but we've had five runs up, down, up, down, up, um, up 10% or more. So, so, you know, based upon the past history, you'd say maybe we're going lower, except for the fact that I think there was a lot of anxiety around elections. I think there's been a lot of anxiety about the cabinet, about policy decisions. I do think that fiscal, uh, as we've talked about on the show, has been a very important, uh, you know, at least ingredient for the market to move higher. The, the, the best thing that's going on here is that banks continue to pick up a bid and that oil is going higher. So, you know, you mentioned that about oil. Um, the fact that oil is moving higher is not inflationary. It's, it's reinforcing a couple of things. First of all, from a credit perspective, it's very good because there was a lot of devastation and there will still be some. But seeing oil move higher is healthy for the market. It's healthy for credit and it may be healthy and a sign on the economy. Um, but the banks here and the fact that credit losses have been uh, at least some of those reserves have been rolled off. There are more to come. And we asked that question on this show. Are, are, why are banks such an outlier to the rest of the market? I think the answer is uh, the banks were taking a very big hit on the unknown mm-hmm. and three vaccines in three weeks uh, does a lot to at least put uh, a little clarity on the longer term vision for banks. And I think the extrapolation of what Tim is saying about the bank stand is that this market rally has broadened. So it's not just the tech names that are leading us higher and higher, if you will. Um, but it, it is also the banks, it's the industrials, it's the materials. Yeah, listen, it, it's a good setup. If you, if you like the idea of the S&P 500 hovering here above those um, prior highs, above 3,600, this kind of sideways action in the mega cap tech stocks that have done most of the heavy lifting this year. So you have these moves into value, into cyclicals. You know, we haven't even talked about the Russell. The Russell 2000 is up 22% from the early November lows here in, in, in a straight line, if we're talking about what can move in a straight line. I don't think that kind of portends too well for a massive breakout move higher. I think there needs to be kind of a one step back, two steps forward. I think if you're a massive bull for all the reasons about fiscal and monetary getting us to the other side of vaccines, um, you don't want to see us rally 10% in a straight line into year end because that just pulls forward a, a ton of performance. Because here's the other thing, people. What are you guys expecting for growth? You know, GDP growth here in the U.S. over the last 10 years has averaged about 2.2%. One of the best years that we had was in 2018 when we had those massive, massive tax cuts. And what happened with that? We borrowed a trillion and a half dollars from the future. 
We gave it to the corporates. They bought their stock back over the next you know, year, year and a half or so. And then the next year, GDP was 2.3%. And here we are in 2020 with a massive hole. So what is it taking us to get here? It's taking trillions and trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus. I just don't think that's a great setup for future returns. I said that, uh, you know, I've said that recently. And what it does do is create an asset bubble. When I say the word asset bubble, that doesn't mean that we're going to crash today, tomorrow, or next week. That means that there is a bubble inflating here. It's been inflating, and that really sets up for some pretty dire things going forward if we don't see the sort of progress on the pandemic and we don't see the sort of, um, you know, I, I guess the, the stability and uh, politically and then the, the setup for growth in our economy that would justify valuations where they are right here. When Dan throws out a people, you know he's serious. Um, just to yeah. counter that guy, you know, the time of the pandemic has been an opportunity for companies to um, to improve operational efficiency, to improve their margins, to improve their balance sheets, for consumers to also improve their balance sheets. And in fact, take a look at this chart of the day. This is uh, the household savings rate and what's happened to it during the pandemic. And I think, Tim, this is a point that you've made time and time again here is that during the pandemic, people aren't spending as much on those experiences, on those vacations, on, on lunch yes. for $10 in the city because they don't go to their office anymore. They, they pull out a, a burrito out of their freezer and heat it up in the microwave. Whatever it is, <laughs> people have got more money here, Guy. They've got more money to spend on things, on goods, and potentially on stocks as well at a time when they're feeling a little bit richer because of the stock market and because of the housing market. Aren't these all good things as well for the markets to go higher? No question about it. I mean, everything you just said is extraordinarily bullish. And the counter to that is, you know, maybe the savings rate, I think the great Carl Quintanilla, we call him Q, mm -hmm. talks about the fact that maybe the savings rate will stay elevated and maybe that's the mm. new norm. And remember, there's still a long way from here to the other side. And I'm telling you, wrapping my ear, so it means we have breaking news. Sorry, Mel. We don't. But you can wrap anyway, because oh. I'm going to move on. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> We've got the Slimer here on deck. Um, traders have given their take on whether or not the markets will go higher or lower in the next 10% move. Let's go off the charts with Fundstrat's Rob Slimer to see what he thinks. Rob, what do you think? Next 10%, higher I, or lower? I think the next 10% is higher. I mean, I, I think you have to just respect the underlying technical action of the market from what we've seen from the March lows, but particularly since what we saw between June and October, where so many cyclical stocks traded sideways and are now breaking out. So e even if you just look at the Dow over, the, over the, the, the last couple of months, and Tim alluded to this, we had these 10, 11, 12 percent gyrations back and forth, and the market's just breaking out of that range. And so if we just look at a 26,000 to 29,000 on the Dow, a breakout in the market's just sitting right above that trading range, I got to say it's pretty bullish action that it can just consolidate here. I think the next 3,000 points plus are to the upside. And sure, in, in the very, very short term, if we're talking about the next week, a lot of micro caps and small caps have been blistering hot, financials, energy. We could get a little dip here into December, but I don't think it's a 10% or, and I doubt it's even 5%. I'm thinking more like 2 or 3%. And then we move higher into the first quarter, through year end and into the first quarter. The underlying market cycle is still very bullish. Breath is expanding, as you pointed out, Melissa. Uh, the VIX has nowhere near collapsed to levels where I'd be particularly concerned. It still looks like 2012, 2016 after the election. I think we've got a long way to run in this market before we see a cycle peak. So we're still very bullish. 
All right, let's talk about the two stocks you see that have the most opportunity. Rob, what are they? Well, great. So, look, a lot of things have run pretty hot. Uh, Tim was talking about the financials running, energy stocks have run. I can't say they're the most timely names after a 20, 30, 40% move in some of those stocks. So, I still like DuPont. I think it's a big cyclical that's going to benefit on the upside if we are moving through this economic malaise. I think that's a very timely name. It's been trading in this sort of 55 to 65 trading range. It's breaking out and and still rel relatively timely. It's not extended. Relative strength is still improving. And the last name is American Express. And yet it's had a big gap up here, but it's just consolidating those gains uh, above that, call it 115, uh, 117 trading range. I think it still looks pretty pretty timely from a, from a trading standpoint. And I think there's more upside in the first quarter. All right. And then the one stock that you say is stretched. Well, it's not, I guess I got to qualify. It's one name that I would avoid. You know, Procter & Gamble's really been in the trading range now for, call it two months. But if you look at the bottom panel of this chart, that relative performance is decaying. You got a, got a high in March, you have a lower high. It's the type of stock that I think continues to uh, lag the market going into year end in the first quarter. And I would stay on the sidelines here. I don't think it's a bad chart. I don't think you're gonna lose a lot of money, but I don't think that's where you're gonna get the juice on the upside. All right, Rob, great to see you. Thank you. Have a good Thanksgiving. Thank you. Rob you Slimer too. of Fundstrat. Brian Kelly, where do you go of Rob's picks? So I think yeah, I like American Express. I, li I like the view. I like how the chart looks on that because I have a pretty well-defined range in terms of how I want to trade it. So you're trading this as a breakout. And if you think about what's going on in the world, you know, American Express tends to have a higher end customer. And what's going on is we have this K-shaped recovery. So stock market going higher. People who buy stocks tends to have an American Express card. There's less of a chance for some sort of uh, delinquency on that. Um, and so if you get some spending increase and you get a stock market where cyclicals are going higher and now I have a tradable range, I think American Express is the one that I would pick. It's also like a secret recovery play because of its exposure to travel, which had been the problem during the pandemic. Um, Dan, which one do you like here? Which chart? Yeah, I like American Express. You know, the day of that first um, a couple weeks ago uh, when we had that, I think it was the Pfizer vaccine and American Express gapped up 15 percent. It was up much more than many of its like banking peers. And I just thought that, you know, up in the high teens, you're probably going to get a pullback towards that 110. That was kind of my final call. I said when it comes back to 110, that's where you reload on these things. And I just want to make that point is that I think the market, given the volatility we're seeing in some of these <laughs> laggards, you're going to have opportunities to get back in and these stocks at breakout levels, especially if you have a longer term time horizon, like playing for the end of this year into next year, these stocks are not going to go straight up. I mean, these groupings that Rob had put forth, it is, they are like a reopening basket with chemicals, right, in American Express versus the pandemic trade, which is Procter & Gamble, which had gone higher, obviously, as people stock up, Guy. So which side, which side of the yeah, ledger are you on? I'm on the DuPont side of things, mm. and if you want to go full circle, I mean, this time last year, DuPont was a $72.5 stock, so it stands to reason we'll do that full circle. And we've actually talked about a lot of these deep cyclical names. You know, Caterpillar's been a name that we focus on, and that's done extraordinarily well. So I'm with Rob on that one. I do think Procter & Gamble's extended. Just on valuation, it's just, you know, an absurd to me that a company with the earnings growth of Procter & Gamble in this environment is trading at the valuation that it is. But that's what the market has seemed fit. I would be I would definitely be getting out of P&G here 
And I do think there's room in DuPont to the upside, 72.5 being the top level. I mean, I think the question for Procter & Gamble, Tim, is in any other environment, can Procter & Gamble have this valuation? Probably not. But before we finish with Procter & Gamble, I have to say, whenever I hear DuPont, I think guys with me on this, I, I think of Andre Moose DuPont, who was a, a bully DuPont. for the Flyers in the mid-70s. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, you asked me about Procter and & Gamble, and, and I think the dynamic for P&G, at least through COVID and stay-at-home and food stocks, uh, put multiples on, on a lot of these names. I think P&G, through the Nelson Peltz agitation, through some of the spinoff uh, dynamics, uh, really has a lot of good news priced into it. I, I don't like the stock at all here, mm. and I would rather be in resources and banks. I would lean towards the resources, and even after a decent move in DuPont, um, you don't buy commodities when they're cheap. You buy them when they're expensive. And I think the recovery here in this reflation trade is, is, is fourth inning, not, not eighth mm. inning. And I think there's a ways to go. Coming up, proceed with caution. That is a big warning tonight from BK as Bitcoin nears the $20,000 mark. Why he's feeling so crypto cautious. But first, we've got our retail wreck in the after hours. Check out shares of Gap. It's down more than 10% right now after reporting results. We'll break down what happened when fast money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a double earnings alert for you. Nordstrom and Gap both on the move after reporting results. Bertha Coombs pulling a twofer on the names. Bertha, what's the story? Yeah, they're going in different directions. Let's start off with Gap, a miss on the bottom line, but nearly $4 billion in revenue were a beat. Uh, comp sales up 5%, driven by a 61% jump in digital. Interestingly, the strength in higher margin Athleta with a record quarter and continued hemorrhaging in Banana Republic, which saw sales swoon 30%. Now, Gap CFO Katrina O'Connell telling CNBC she's optimistic about the holiday quarter. She thinks people are going to spend more on apparel because they don't have to uh, basically spend on travel. But on the call, there was a more cautious note saying uh, recent the recent rise in COVID-19 cases remains a concern which may impact store traffic. As for Nordstrom, sales were just shy of $3.1 billion, but more or less in line. Uh, more than half of that driven by online. The company reporting an adjusted profit, which it's unclear if it's comparable to estimates. The street had been looking for an adjusted loss. Net sales were down 
15%. That compares to a 5% drop back in the second quarter, but it was driven by a 32% drop in off-price sales. Again, people seem to be spending more on full price. That was down only about 6.6%. On the call, Nordstrom president Pete Nordstrom striking a more optimistic tone about holiday, saying that by working with our vendor partners, we've made quick adjustments to ensure a great holiday offering for our customers. We're encouraged by the positive momentum and expect continued progress in the fourth quarter and into 2021. So I guess accentuating the positive is working here. <laughs> Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs with the retail earnings roundup. Um, interesting out of the gap, Banana Republic continues to be extremely weak, down 30 percent. They actually named a new chief growth officer and a new president and CEO of Banana Republic, I guess, hoping to bolster the uh, performance there because that is really been a drag, Tim. I mean, I don't know when the last time you bought banana khakis were or anything else for that matter, but um, nobody's buying apparently. You know, I almost feel like there's no reason for khakis. And it's not just the new home environment. I, I got sick of khakis about a decade ago. But Dan was right on this call last night. We talked about a couple of these names and the move on gap into the numbers. I think it was fair uh, to say that not only had it had a big move, but the valuation was tough. The, 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 the closing, 225 more stores continues. Uh, I think some of the comp sales uh, expectations for, for the fourth quarter were, were that they were going to be closer to flat than minus 5%. So after a massive run, not a big surprise. I would argue, as what I said yesterday, that Banana Republic, though, is not even in the price. You're getting it for free. And I, I, I wouldn't be terribly concerned about banana because I don't think expectations were, were very high for banana. I think khakis are back, though. I mean, Dan, I know you're an avid watcher really? for sister channel MSNBC. Steve Kornacki made them hot again. He's standing at that map wall, right, going through all the different counties during the elections. He's wearing khakis every day. And he got them from the Gap. He's the khaki guy now. I, I love Kornacki. I, love, I could not have gotten through early November without Kornacki. Um, it was amazing. I have a whole line of, of, uh, of chinos now. All right, here's the deal. Uh, you know, this stock was, this thing was already challenged. You know, this is before the pandemic really hit our shores. If you think about it, the stock was trading in the high teens in February before we had the lockdowns. And that was kind of part of the discussion we had last night. And I will give Tim a shout out because he's been right on these department stores. But, you know, we talk about retail, we talk about omni-channel, we talk about online sales, and there's been a lot of acceleration. Some companies had already been doing this, so they had been making the investments, and then other companies were kind of forced to do it to just stay alive. I'd kind of put Gap in that category right here. So some of the issues that they're having with fashion and the work from home, I don't think are going to change much, and I don't think the costs associated with, um, you know, their omni-channel approach are really going to, um, uh, investors are going to appreciate up 400% from the lows in March. Not, khaki's notwithstanding. The Gap had fashion issues prior to the pandemic changing what people actually wanted, Guy. So they, they had a, a bigger problem to solve. No, no doubt about it. And we're going to talk about Nordstrom's in a second, but you want to compare quarters? Take a look at these two quarters. They're completely different, and Nordstrom's figured it out, and Gap is a disaster. And the, the, listen, you just said it. Banana Republic comps were down 30%, which is just... Half, twice as bad as the street was looking for, and their margins were lower. It's just not a great quarter by any metric, juxtaposed to Nordstrom, who has their inventories in, in line. I think their inventories were down like 27% year over year, operating margins better, and now I think 54% of their sales are from digital. So good for Nordstrom's, bad for Gap. Maybe Gap should have named Kornacki the CEO and the chief marketing officer, and maybe instead <laughs> of getting uh, you know that for free, 
they'd actually put a premium on it. And I'm not even half kidding around. That's probably would have been a genius move on their part. He's looking for a new gig, I'm sure, at this point. No, he's, he's gainfully employed at MSNBC. Quick, would you rather Nordstrom or Gap, BK? I'd rather yoga pants. Lululemon. Playing by your own That's rules. That's not playing what? the game right, right. Mel. Yeah. Forget it. What do you mean it's not playing the game? I've completely switched to yoga pants. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, actually. Uh, we've got a lot more ahead here on Fast Scary. Money. Here's what's coming up next. <laughs> The Bitcoin boom is taking Wall Street by storm again. But our Bitcoin baller, BK, says it may be time to pump the brakes. He'll tell us why. And later, is it time to steal up your portfolio? The resource name that soared more than 20% today. We'll tell you what it is and bring you the trade. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. As Wall Street roars to new record highs, there are two hot trades that could be sending some big warnings. They're both Fast Money mainstays, the Bitcoin boom and the cannabis craze. But we start off with Bitcoin and the baller. The cryptocurrency passes the $19,000 mark for the first time since 2017. Beeks is getting a little cautious. Why? Well, so listen, let's be clear. I'm still a Bitcoin bull, right? I mean, in the long run, I'm going to be a bull for the next decade. But... Well, if I take off kind of the long-term investor hat and put on my short-term hedge fund trader hat, when I, there's a couple things out there that I'm starting to see that are signs of a top. And more than any other asset class in the world, Bitcoin is subject to FOMO more than anything else. So we're starting to see speculative coins, coins that are under $5 start to go up 30 40% in a day. Those are type of things that happen at short to medium-term tops. Uh, when I look at the address growth, markets pricing in about 25% address growth over the next 30 days. Whenever you get that big of address growth implied, that's a caution sign. Uh, and then number the, the last one is that, you know, we are starting to see retail come into this market and you're starting to see the interest rates that it charges on margin going much higher. So all of those things are signs that, hey, you know, I think it's fine to buy Bitcoin. Earlier this year, I thought I said Bitcoin could go to 50000 within a year. I still think that's the case. But if you're buying Bitcoin at 19000 you need to be prepared that it drops to twelve before it goes to fifty. And so, you know, I just exercise a bit of caution on any asset that's up almost 200% in a year. I'm just curious, BK, having this belief, I mean, do you, do you change how you trade? <clears throat> do you use futures in any way? I mean, yeah. what do you do? 
Yeah, so I mean, I would say, you know, for the fund, we're less long Bitcoin this week than we were two or three weeks ago. We'll always have a core position, but you can trade around it. Um, you know, if you're an investor at home and you're saying, hey, I want to get some Bitcoin, I think it's going to 50K. Uh, so maybe buy half of it right here. Wait for a pullback. Wait for one of those times when we say Bitcoin's had its worst week in two years. That's the day you want to be buying the other half. All right, let's switch from this hot trade to another pot stocks. Lighting up as well. Tim is seeing some parallels to this Bitcoin boom in terms of caution. Um, Tim, what, what are you noting? Well, first of all, today was you know a day that was about as big of an update as cannabis has ever seen, and it's come after a massive run. So, uh, like BK, I, I urge investors do your homework. There are companies that are trades, and there are companies that are long-term investments. Look, we just came out of a period where the five biggest companies in the United States, who have the biggest operating, uh, excuse me, the biggest addressable market in the world, produced 40 to 50 percent sequential growth. I mean, they were, it was extraordinary, and it continues to go. Uh, and, and so I think the fundamentals here for being a long-term investor in this space where the legislation is, is only part of the story of great operators and, and a, a growing and growing sophisticated consumer products market, where I think these five companies and, and many more behind them are going to be some of the big companies. But we've also looked at some of the Canadian LPs. There's been this big debate. Are they just trades? Are they investments? And a lot of people, look, a lot of capital has been, been lost and eradicated uh, in bad capital structures. And, and some of that's been north of the border. It doesn't mean that they're all bad companies. In fact, there's some great companies up there. So um, there's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of enthusiasm. Like Brian's seeing, I'm seeing new family offices and I'm seeing uh, you know, uh, institutional investment behind this. I, I'm very much long-term bullish. And if anything, what we've seen is through very dip difficult operating conditions, cannabis companies are operating and rising to the occasion at a time when this is a story that's not. And this is fortunately the, the, the difference between Bitcoin and cannabis right now, it's, it's very clear people understand. I know it's bizarre to have to even explain that, but there was a time people were just looking at them as FOMO asset classes. They may still be, um, but the fundamentals that are unfolding here in cannabis are incredible. Uh, and I think you just have to be very careful about what you own and look at the balance sheet. Look at look at the look at the warrant structure. Look at the capital structure and, and look if they're actually making money and, and, and be careful of a lot of hype out there in, in the in, on the internet, I would say. All right, still ahead. Gentlemen, start your engines. Two traders are going head to head over Ford. Sue takes a victory lap on this one. But first, we've got a special guest fast pitch on deck. A pinch hitter stepping up to the plate to make the case for this bank stock. Is it a total home run? We'll bring you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a bonus hour of Fast Money coming your way tomorrow night. We are going live from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and we're taking your questions. That's right. We want to hear from you, so shoot us your burning stock questions on Twitter at CNBC Fast Money, and you just might get your answer on air. All right, check out shares of PNC jumping alongside the market today, but it is still in the red on the year. PNC following suit with the rest of the financials, which are now the second worst performing sector in 2020. Our next guest says the regional bank could be gearing up for a rebound. Joining us now for another guest fast pitch is Kate Battis, the CEO of Grace Capital. Kate, great to have you with us. What do you like about PNC? I think PNC is fantastic for a number of reasons. First of all, it's announced deal to buy the U.S. assets of BBVA is a game changer. It gets PNC into the Sun Belt. It gets PNC Texas, which is the crown jewel for banking assets. 
and they're going to get some great cost synergies out of the deal. Second thing I love about PNC is its ESG, environmental, social, and governmental factors. PNC is simply put a great corporate citizen. Okay, uh, They've pledged a billion dollars to help low-income communities and have pledged $30 million just for COVID relief. Third thing about PNC is its deposit franchise. So you think about a bank, you think it's a commodity. They take in deposits, they make loans, and that's it, they get a little spread. No, not for PNC. For PNC, almost half of its revenue comes from fees. That means its depositors like the bank, they do business with it. They're not just parking their money there, they're using asset management, insurance, other things to allow them to make a fee. Last thing about PNC's evaluation, okay? 12% return on equity, which is great. Uh, trading at under 1.2 times price to book, the price is right. The dividend yield is north of 3%. They've doubled their dividend in the last five years, and the dividend should grow. So buy PNC. Uh, Brian Kelly, one of our traders, got a question for you, Kate mm -hmm. BK. Yeah. Hey, Kate. So I'm curious um, about the, the new administration coming in. There's potentially that they're not very bank friendly. You've got a bank here that's trading 1.2 times book. I'm curious, you know, one thought in the market is that banks are basically utilities and utilities trade at one times book. Banks have had a tough time trading above one times book over the last several years. Are you concerned about an unfriendly political environment? I am not. Um, I think if you look at historically, banks have been protected, too big to fail, you name it. I think they're considered important assets, they're important to the economy, and I'm not concerned about that in the least. In those times, though, Kate, when banks were protected, did their price to books fall? And I'm, I'm asking this because they could be protected and they could be viewed as too big to fail, but they could also be viewed as too big to fail because they are utilities and therefore they do command that lower price to book. Yes, you know, that is a good point. Um, since 08, the bank environment has completely changed. The regulatory envi environment has changed. You have much better, tighter regulation, and this is good for the banks. So I'm actually not concerned about this in the least. I think, um, look at what's happened with COVID. They needed the banks for the uh, PPP loans. I, I think um, I'm very comfortable with the regulatory environment. All right. No more uh, time here. It is time to vote. Are you buying or selling Kate's pitch on PNC? Guy Adami, what do you say? Mel, can you read my uh, whiteboard? I do can know how to that, read. Uh, it says, I saw Frank Sinatra at the Garden State Art Center. Yes, I did. I did see Frank Sinatra at the Garden State Art Center. And for most of our viewers, they will know that the Garden State Art Center is now the PNC Center. And Brian and Dan Nathan was in my head, sent me a chart in a commercial break, highlighting that 160 was where we topped out last December. That would put us at about 1.7 times tangible book. That's where it goes. And that's mm. where you pull the ripcord. Well done on the power pitch. All right. So that is a buy. That all boils down to a buy. Tim, what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm banking on Kate. 
See, wow. um, and I'm buying PNC too. And, and I think it's a it's a combination of yes, the sweet spot. We talked about the asset class. I'll leave that alone. Uh, BBVA acquisition immediately accretive. It overcomes mm -hmm. the loss of the BlackRock asset sale. Uh, and I think a company that actually has more gearing to it in the future. So they should trade at a premium, uh, and I think they will. Dan. Yeah, I thought that was a great power pitch um, by Kate. I'm not a buyer here at 140, and this is kind of consistent <laughs> with what I was saying about buying these breakouts. That's a great fundamental case that she just made. You don't have to buy it at 140. It'll likely be back at 130 in the next few weeks or so. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And by the way, the first concert I ever went to, guy, 1979, the Beach Boys at the Garden State Arts Center. How about that? I love how that all comes full circle. I really do. Uh, Brian Kelly. Exciting. Yeah, you know what? I'm with my brother from another mother, Dan Nathan. I, I am concerned that this has gone too far too fast. I think Kate makes an excellent fundamental point, but the stock's gone from 105 to 140 in a basically less than a month. And so I think a lot of the regulatory concerns of the new administration may not be priced in yet. All right. So our panel is tied on this. Two buys, two sells. Kate, wow. before we turn it over to the viewers, do you have one last final word, one last appeal? I, I, I'm going to stick with what I'm saying. Pia, it's, it's gone up a lot. It, it's gone up, what, 25% since they reported for the quarter. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with PNC. It's a long-term buy. You've got to own it. All right. We'll see what the viewers say. Kate, thank you. Catherine Faddis, Grace Capital. The traders have voted. It's your turn. Are you buying Kate's fast pitch on PNC? Vote in her Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. Results at the end of the show. Up next, shares of Ford accelerating. Does the rally have any gas left? We'll dive into the options pits for a look at that trade. Stick around. More Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nikola shares zooming higher today. Jim Cramer just sat down with the company's CEO, Mark Russell. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, our current plan is based on what we ended the quarter with, which we announced that in our earnings call. We got about $900 million on cash at that point. That's enough to fund our operations through this year, next year, on into 22. Uh, we've been upfront all along that we would do one more tranche of equity raise uh, that we would need to do before we got to a self-sustaining run rate. And uh, we'll do that sometime next year when, it's, when, when conditions are right. Full interview coming up at the top of the hour on Mad Money tonight. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, that was just a little snippet. There are a million questions that we want answered. Uh, this is the guy <laughs> who succeeded. Uh, Trevor Milton, uh, clearly. So, Tim, I'm wondering, what, what would you add? What do you want to hear? Well, I, I want to have, first of all, for a, a question about a company that really, where are you? Is your, comp is, is, is your truck built? Can it actually move without uh, outside propulsion, et cetera? I mean, I, I think there are some basic questions about uh, where the business is, mm -hmm. where the, the, the partnering with an OEM like GM really takes them, and, and really when we can start looking at, at, at cash flow, when we could, not, not free cash flow, but at least top line. And I think those are the more, most important things. Um, truly, some of the infrastructure questions about what make this concept work uh, in terms of both national infrastructure and where they are on, on some of these, these you know, hydrogen cell technologies, I think are the keys. But the keys are really, where is this company in its business model right now? And as I think you, you phrased the question uh, long ago to, 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 to Mr. Milton, you know, is this a business model or is this a company? Right. Um, Guy, just quickly, if, if it can't seal the deal with GM, is that a sign for investors? 
I, you know, I thought it would have been a while ago. My bigger question would be, you know, are we through? Can you assuage the concerns of investors and traders vis-a-vis the, the huge headline risk we saw earlier this year under the Trevor Milton regime? So although I think the GM, the GM relationship is a huge thing, I think the, the, some of the things that went on over the last six months is a bigger concern. And can you address those issues? Yeah. All right. Again, full interview tonight on Mad. Uh, EV stocks may be stealing all the headlines, but don't ignore the big move in one legacy name today. Ford shares up more than 6% in today's session. Over in the options market, traders are betting that the gains are far from over. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike. Yeah, so in Ford, we saw more than three times the average daily call volume. That's saying a lot because this is a name that trades over 100,000 calls a day, typically over 420,000 traded today. The most active of those were the January 10 strike calls. We saw more than 50,000 of those trade for about 32 cents. Buyers of those calls are obviously expecting that Ford shares could exceed that $10 strike price by at least the 32 cents that they paid. That suggests they're betting on a more than 10% rally over the course of the next two months. Dan, what do you think of Ford? You know, listen, the thing got way overdone, right, in, in the throes of this pandemic here, and no one really knew what the heck was going on with U.S. automakers, and they did not see the sort of enthusiasm about EVs. And no doubt about it, Ford has an exciting slate of trucks coming out, some of them EVs. I'm just not a fan of buying the stock here after the run that it's had. It's basically unchanged on the year after rallying 130% from the lows. I look at their earnings. They went from on an adjusted basis last year from like a dollar ten. They're going to lose a few cents this year. They don't get back to peak earnings, at least as far as Wall Street consensus, for another five years or so. Last year, the company did $140 billion in sales, and they had less than $5 billion in net income. <laughs> this is not a profitable company, and I think the ramp into EV is going to be expensive. I like what they're doing. I'm just not sure that the stock is particularly investable right here. And just lastly, technically, draw a line from that 2014 high and go from uh, top left to bottom right, and you see a very well-defined downtrend. It is threatening that right here. But after the run it's had, I don't think you're going to get that much more from it. I see why people want to buy calls. Playing for that breakout, that's probably a good way to do it. I mean, I think the core question for Ford, as well as the GM, which we've asked on this show many times, is uh, should these stocks be re-rated given what they're doing with EVs uh, right now, Tim, in their, in their EV portfolio, which is actually coming to market at this point? Yeah, and Dan brings up a great point that, that, that there's no question that Ford has struggled with profitability. Uh, let alone a lot of other dynamics, and expecting them to suddenly be uh, this this darling EV story. Um, the chart is very interesting. You know, this has been dead money for 10 years. This has been a story that uh, I think, like GM, has gone nowhere. And in fact, it's been a capital destruction story. So I actually like the Ford chart on the breakout here. I, I actually think we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the, the next wave of, of people actually understanding that these companies and Ford more than GM had to prove that they could be profitable. Those third quarter numbers, over two and a half billion dollars in free cash flow. I mean, this is a story of a company that never ran right. So the estimates that were raised coming out of that third quarter by Alice were on a, uh, a higher base of their North American. American margins, which means that it is a more profitable company and it, it has changed its stripes. So I think that's really the key. It's been painful. It's been painful socially. It's been painful economically for the company. But um, the fact that the F-150 will be the most popular EV car in this country or truck or because it's both is a very exciting story for Ford and it should re-rate. Just quickly, BK, Ford or Tesla? Oh, uh, Tesla, it's got more hype. I think Ford, a lot of stuff is priced in already. Guy, you raise your hand, so I'll call on you. 
I, I have to because there's a wild card here, and the great Mike Mobison, who many people know, just uh, emailed me, and I knew this. Uh, there's a wild card with Ford, and that's that Jim Farley, Mobison. Georgetown class of 1985, right. is the CEO and president of Ford. Just yep. pointing that out, Mel. New CEO. All right, still time to cast your ballot on our Twitter poll. Are you ready to bank on PNC? Vote at CBC Fast Money. we got the results coming up. Um, and we will head to break right now, and we'll see you on the other side. Stay tuned. More Fast straight ahead. Welcome back. We've got some breaking news. Joe Biden, president-elect, giving his first interview since becoming president-elect. He just sat down with NBC's Lester Holt. Let's get to Kayla Tausche with the exclusive sound. Kayla. Melissa, that interview wrapping just a few moments ago following President-elect Biden's announcement of some key national security and foreign policy appointments. And in that sit-down interview, Biden says the peaceful transfer of power, a hallmark of American democracy, has begun. The head of the GSA yesterday uh, unlocked the mechanisms for there to be a formal transition of power, recognizing uh, your status right now. Is that happening on the ground? Are there people talking right now who weren't talking yesterday? Yes. Immediately, we've gotten outreach from uh, from the national security shop, from just across the board. And uh, they're already working out my ability to get presidential daily briefs. We're already working out meeting with the COVID team in the White House and how to not only distribute, but get from a vaccine being distributed to a a person able to get vaccinated. So I think we're going to not be so far behind the curve as we thought we might be in the past. And there's a lot of immediate discussion. and, uh, and, And I must say, the outreach has been Sincere. There's not been begrudging so far, and I don't expect it to be. So, yes, it's already begun. That comes just hours after the General Services Administration's official ascertainment of the presidency. Biden saying that outreach is happening at all levels. Melissa, that interview will air this evening on Nightly News, 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Back to you. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. And again, full interview tonight on Nightly. And more analysis on the news with Shepard Smith right here on CNBC. Coming up, last chance to vote in our fast pitch. Do you think PNC is a buy? Head to Twitter at CNBC Fast Money. Weigh in. The results and the final trades are next. Welcome back to Fast Time to find out if the Twitterverse is buying Kate Battis' pitch on PNC. Sorry, viewers were, bank- were not banking on this pitch. Nearly 70% of voters said they were not buying PNC. Unbreak my heart for, for Kate. Time for the final trade, Tim. And the dance mix. Freeport Mac going higher. That means it's really bad. Dan. <laughs> yeah, Microsoft. I like it here. Brian Kelly. Hey, this market rewards uh, wild ideas. Space, SPCE, like that one. Guy. DuPont. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, 
positively FedEx. 